bum bum bottom 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 bum
until I've bathed and you're just the opposite. My teeth fine. are clean. I'm talking into this microphone with a fresh mouth and I think that the listeners can tell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so can your husband. Like, <laughs> you know, there are limits to your filthiness and how much I can handle it. If you're standing across from me, uh, standing, if you're sitting across from me at the podcast table, I don't want you blowing a tsunami of foul stench <laughs> of at hot me. morning breath? Yeah. I don't need any of that hot morning breath on my podcast, especially when the I, comics I are so damn sad. Oh, yeah. I'm already crying from the emotions. I don't need to be crying because of an actual <laughs> physical attack. I don't think my mouth is that foul. <laughs> now my feelings are going to get hurt. Oh, well, now we're ready to talk about Saga. And while last episode we said we'd cover Saga Volume 6, but after reading Volume 6, we felt there was not enough Marco and Alana content to devote a whole episode around them. And since we were planning to squeeze two volumes into one episode next week, we thought, well, forget that. Let's do that now, squishing Volume 6 and 7 into this episode that you're hearing right now. If this was not part of your plan, well, we're sorry, but you can hit pause, read Saga Volume 7, and then hit play again. We'll wait for you. Oh, and if for whatever reason this is your first time listening to Comic Book Couples Counseling, you may want to check those show notes. There you'll find links to our previous five episodes on Marco and Alana covering Saga Trade Paperbacks Volumes 1 through 5. You folks can hit that pause button too. Again, we'll wait. Pa pause for a funny beat. Yeah, and we just did it. We just paused for the funny beat, <laughs> He Lisa. wrote that right into the... I, I, I know it's gauche to read the stage direction, but when it's so brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys, are you back? Let's get on with it. See, I think that funny beat would have been funny <laughs> if you had not pointed it out, Lisa. It's like what every podcast does. Yeah, what... Well, like, it's a classic. It's we a classic. made a fresh, fresh take on the funny beat. Okay, well, you just did it. <laughs> I really love these two volumes, like I said. And as much as I love Marco and Alana, the devilish pairing between Prince Robot and Goose is just my freaking favorite thing ever. I love these two. And as I was reading these comics, I kept finding myself like screenshotting little images of their exchanges and like tweeting them out. Like there's something about the design of Goose and the design of Prince Robot. It's like the perfect odd couple pairing. And of course, like through my obsession, I had to like go to the internet. I remember reading the creation story of Goose that Fiona Staples once told, but I couldn't quite put it down. So I went to the internet. I started scouring for that uh, little tidbit and my click clacking brought me to the Entertainment Weekly interview that our buddy Christian Holub conducted with Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples after they announced Saga's return last year at the New York Comic Con. And in it, Lisa, Brian talks about how he and Fiona, uh, they will have like a mini State of the Union after each arc is concluded. Apparently, while Vaughn knows where this story is going, Staples has asked him to not spoil the ride. I love that. Isn't that great? So after each arc, they'll do a little bit of reflection and she offers input and whatnot, which will change the course of the series. And Goose is an example of this. Staples created the character as a doodle one day and just presented the little person to Vaughn and asked if there was a place for him in this story and the rest is freaking adorable history. Except Lisa, Vaughn said something in this 2021 interview that really concerns oh, me. Oh no. First he said, and I quote, 
And I realized immediately, can Goose be in the book? No, the book is basically about this guy moving forward. So that's kind of interesting, right? And I don't know if I necessarily even believe him, uh, but it's what he says next that got my hair to stand up. Christian basically asks the two creators post Saga 54, is Goose okay? And well, without spoiling anything from volumes eight and nine, because Lisa has not read them yet, Vaughn told Christian that Goose may have to pay for his role in what happens in these volumes we're covering this week, as well as the volumes we'll cover over the next two episodes. Here's Vaughn. Fiona, you're his creator, his god. Will we get to see more of that guy ever? Staples, I hope so. I hope we'll see him. Vaughn, that good boy is out there somewhere, even if he doesn't show up in this first issue back. Spoilers, he doesn't. I know readers would boycott otherwise. Vaughn continues, any character who commits any sort of act of violence in Saga, it feels like there's always going to be a cost to that, no matter how much we love them and how adorable they are. So will Goose pay for his sins some days? Someday we'll have to see. But like not okay, there's like a huge swath of what not okay can be. It doesn't yes. necessarily yes. mean yes. that you are like a stain in the snow somewhere. Right, 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 right. But like the, you know, the fact that he put like Goose's head on a chopping block of sorts in this interview, like, I, like it, it freaks me out because that is a character and we've met other characters already, and we will meet characters in volume seven that I think are incredibly adorable and great additions to the narrative and could spin into all kinds of interesting ways uh, further down the line. And then Vaughn and Staples will kill those characters, right? But if he kills Goose, like <laughs> I will not be okay. And you know, he's gonna kill some people that I'm still not okay about, but if he kills Goose, we're in trouble uh, because my relationship will be uh, teetering on the edge of oblivion then. But it's also kind of worth noting that one time Vaughn wrote Lying Cat uh, into a particularly dangerous situation and Fiona Staples herself threatened to leave the book if anything ever happened to that fellow. Has she said something similar about Goose? I sure hope so. You did say particularly. Yeah, I know. I can't say that word particularly. <laughs> I don't know why I can't say that word. So we're keeping it in. Yeah, we're keeping it in. We're moving forward. But I feel like we spent, you you spent your entire section talking about Goose. Yeah. But we're not really going to be talking about Goose in this episode. No, not necessarily. But like, that's why I wanted to highlight how freaking much I love this character. <laughs> but like, there is this huge temptation when talking about Saga in this context, to put everyone on the couch, especially yes. on the topic of sadness yes. and grief. There are so many relationships and so many avenues that we could explore how to be sad with these characters. I think in this two volume arc, we could do two full episodes on the will and yeah. the stock. We could also talk about Sir Robot or Prince Robot, whatever you're calling him these days, and his separation from Squire. Like, yes. But this is comic book couples counseling. We pick one couple. Right, right. Put on the couch. So I think it should be said that 
even though Saga is eventually ending... 108 episodes, according to Vaughn and Staples. Like, it's... It doesn't mean we can't circle back to Saga at some later date and go like, okay, we're doing Saga again, but this time we're doing The Will and the Stock. Yes. Or this time we're doing Goose and Prince Robot 4. Yeah, I think so. I think Saga is a universe of relationships, and we could theoretically return to this series over and over and over again. And who knows where we go after issue 54, right? Like, because... You know, the subjects of this series <laughs> may not, it may, you know, their, their story might not. Uh, I, I, the dynamics, the dynamics, changes. family yeah, dynamics well, the change. Well, fo the focus of the comic might be revealed to be somebody else beyond these two. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I, I got to stop talking. Well, it's it's my turn to talk anyway, Brad. So, okay, good. So you work on remaining grounded in the present. Yes, thank you. We do not know the future. Right. And here we go. Let's talk about our love expert. Our relationship expert for Marco and Alana is Helen Russell using her book, How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad. Helen Russell is an author who has dedicated her career to researching and considering cultural approaches to emotions. How to Be Sad is part self-help, part memoir, and she looks into how our anti-sadness culture negatively impacted Helen and her family following her sister's death from SIDS. The book includes cited research and interviews from psychologists, neuro, big word, neuropharmacologists, grief counselors, geneticists, psychotherapists, neuroscientists, doctors, and dietitians, and submits that by reframing our cultural perspective on sadness, we might be better equipped to reap the benefits of that emotion. I've just got to say, like, how to be sad as a memoir is a little bit of a gauntlet because yeah. she is in many sections of the book um, recounting parts of her life which are extremely sad, but also she is listing off all of the reasons that we have to be sad in the present. Right, there's so many of them. She started this book in 2020. <laughs> there's and, so many more now. <laughs> and so she was going like, okay, this is the time where this book has to come out because we are all, we all have really valid reasons to be sad. Yeah. And, and we might as well go at that emotion the most equipped yeah, ever. I was thinking about this the other day with you because you are one, reading Saga, mm -hmm. which in of itself is very sad and can be described as a gauntlet, right? And then you're pairing it with a book dealing with the concept of sadness and our relationship with it as a culture, which can be punishing as well. And you've been listening to the memoir when you do eventually go and shower your body in the afternoon, the yeah. late, late, yeah. late afternoon. You will listen to the memoir as an audiobook in the bathroom. And I, you know, I catch the book as well. And I, I mean, it, it's a lot. You're, you're, you're dealing with a lot, both fictionally, uh, self-help wise, and also just uh, when you log online or look out your window or turn on the news. Yeah, and, and there's a lot in her book that parallels my life. She dealt with anorexia, which I also had anorexia at one point, and she deals with, you know, just self-esteem issues. She's also struggled with depression. And so that brings up a lot of, you know, kind of latent 
stuff. For yeah, me. I mean, it brings up a lot of like uncomfortable, squidgy feelings. Um. So. So yeah. But is the question becomes, and the reason we picked it for Saga, is exploring the function of sadness through her memoir ultimately beneficial for our understanding of Marco and Alana and ultimately beneficial for your own understanding of your relationship with sadness? I think yes. Um, I'm not covering the memoir part of how to be sad on these episodes. So if this intrigues you and you don't think that you'll find uh, the topics of anorexia or depression like triggering to you. Like I recommend seeking out her book. Um, But I have kind of condensed the material down to like the action plan aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I do find her tips extremely helpful. And I think that it is good to have a plan for when you feel certain emotions because um, like sadness can sometimes be linked with a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. And we know from Brene Brown that the key to hope is to have some kind of plan of action and um, the knowledge that this emotion is temporary. And as we discussed last week, the whole idea of sadness being bad is an incorrect notion and something that uh, we are buffeted by through our culture. But what the book is trying to do is prepare you for the inevitability of sadness, which is as much a function in our life as happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that that's always a good reminder because like when you are sad, uh, it can feel like all you are is sad and it can feel so oppressive and you can feel trapped in that state. And, you know, my my strategy with that is to brood on that state and getting out of that state is so difficult. But if you have an action plan, like Helen Russell proposes, you can get out of that um, or you can manage that experience Yeah, it's not about expediting. Or or, no, it's not no? about expediting the, the sadness. <laughs> it's about experiencing the sadness. Mm, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I like that a lot better. Because, see, I was still trapped in my culture of, like, we got to get out of sadness. We've only just started this topic. Right, And um, I think before we get into new material, I think there are a few takeaways from our last session that we need to keep in the forefront of our minds for Marco and Alana. First, we need Helen Russell's definition of sadness, which is, quote, the natural response to emotional pain, feelings of loss, helplessness, hopelessness, or disappointment – That's the end of the quote. And it should never be seen as a failure or something to be ashamed of. Yeah. The second thing is that when we have sadness, we should address the problem and not the emotion. So, like, the tendency is like, oh, no, I feel sadness. I need to extinguish that emotion. But then we're not considering, okay, well, why am I sad? Our emotions are there to tell us something. So we shouldn't try to dampen or avoid them. And we've seen both Marco and Alana try to avoid sadness by numbing and taking fade away. And in both cases, it didn't really turn out all that great. Sadness is our body's way of telling us that we need to reach out to other people. Like hunger is a cue for food, Mm. sadness is a cue for human connection. And we saw this to be the case in volume five, 
both Marco and Alana were in pretty dangerous circumstances, but Alana had a confidant in Clara. Yeah. And she fared, fared much better than Marco, who was surrounded by individuals he didn't trust, Prince Robot 4, Yuma, and Goose, and he spiraled into self-loathing and destructive behavior. The last session was really about curbing those less productive behaviors when it comes to sadness. So now I think Alana and Marco are ready to be introduced to the material of part one of How to Be Sad entitled How to Look After Ourselves When We're Sad. And I love the term look after because mm. I think that like it takes you outside of yourself mm -hmm. so that when you're feeling sad, you go like, oh, poor baby, yeah. Let, allow me to look after you, allow me to help you. So um, I've this is a numbered list. So Brad, you're safe. Okay, no bullets. Huh? <laughs> no bullets. All right, good, 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 good. So number one, number one is don't fight it. Guess what? When you're sad, you're sad. You may try to rationalize, contextualize, or redefine it, but you know when you have it, and it's not a bad thing. According to Professor Hare from American University, when we feel sad, our brain begins to ruminate. Like worry is the cognitive manifestation mm, of yeah. anxiety, rumination is the cognitive manifestation of sadness. Rumination helps us consider next steps to address or change the situation that is making us sad. Oh, when you are fighting your sadness, don't be afraid to rip off some BFTs. What? Big fat tears. Oh. Scientists have done some <laughs> research into the function of tears. Why do we cry? Thinking that maybe we're like leaching toxins or endorphins from huh. our face. But tears are just saline from our eye holes. And it's an outward sign of distress. Why? Because other people need to know that we're sad so they can help us. According to Ad Wengerholtz, the tear professor from Tilburg University huh. in the Netherlands, crying is a way to elicit support from others during times of distress. Yeah, yeah. I think that is something that uh, we need to uh, uh, work on as a society because so often you'll see a crying person and the emotional response is to flee, yeah, leave them, them alone, space. give them space. And uh, that is so not the case. And I think, uh, you know, through our relationship, my relationship with crying has changed for the better. You have helped me um, appreciate your tears and my tears because you are uh, much more free with the saline than I was previously. But but now I, now, now I cry also. And more importantly, like when I see somebody crying, I ask a question. I approach them rather than like, you know, turn a corner around the alleyway. And sometimes crying people do not want help. Sometimes sure. they just need to get the emotion out. And that's also totally fine. But I think um, I don't have the studies at my fingertips, but there have been studies done to show that when someone is in distress, the bigger the crowd that they're in, the less likely people will be to help. Right. So just that knowledge makes you go like, okay, so in a big crowd, it has to be my responsibility or, or no one else will do and anything. And that's where I've experienced crying in public. It's at film festivals. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised at how many people cry during a film festival. Well, 100% um, one of them is me. <laughs> Correct. And what, what you witness is you see all these people not wanting to like notice that person. And so when you do see somebody in a crowd crying like I do think they are um you know they you need to ask them a question you need to check in with them and maybe they don't want your help maybe they they don't need your help but you should at least say like hi how you doing 
Yeah, yeah. Now, that doesn't mean, like, if you are about to cry, you should immediately, like, take it to the streets. <laughs> like, because it doesn't mean that you shouldn't also cry alone. Sure. Because even when alone, crying can feel great. Crying soothes us, reducing cortisol levels, making us feel less stressed. Psychologist Cord Beneke from University of Kassel, Germany, studied criers versus non-criers, and criers experience fewer, quote, negative, aggressive feelings, end quote, like rage and disgust. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, I believe that. So, on me. like, for me, the bottom line is express the emotion. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're with someone or alone, just expressing the emotion feels good. Yeah, okay. That yeah, that's a great tip. Number 2 is lower expectations. This one should not be confused with one of the most common ways to try and fail to avoid sadness, which is uh, avoid meaningful goals. Have big dreams, shoot for the moon, but then really consider what it means to land amongst the stars. Is it really that bad? Disappointment is defined as the psychological reaction that occurs when an outcome doesn't match up to our expectation. That metaphor, you just like, like my brain lit up. The idea of like shooting for the moon, missing, but then you're still amongst the stars. How rad is that? <laughs> and it, it is the biggest cliche ever. And our thing is to dismiss it, where we go like, but... I told everyone that I was going to the moon. <laughs> yeah, but now I'm in the stars. I'm like, still in the still stars. that's still great. That's great. I love that. Yes. And maybe missing the sky altogether and being on the ground, that could also be great. We don't know. Right, right. And how a failure can lead to discovery in another arena, too. Yeah. Uh, awesome. In 2014, Dr. Rob Rutledge from University of College London published a study um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that included a mathematical equation for happiness based on our expectations. The research found that it doesn't matter whether or not things are going well for us. What matters most to our happiness is that things are going better than expected. Mm, interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So instead of only striving for the best possible outcome, and labeling every other outcome as failure, consider all possible outcomes and broaden your definition for success. Interesting, yeah. The road to success is never a straight line. And in most cases, failure is actually a marker of progress. Yeah, and like how often do you read an article or watch a video where a, a famous author, a famous comic book person like shares all the rejection letters that mm -hmm. they experience? Like that's a badge of honor. That's a point of pride. That's one of my, oh, I'm digressing, but that's one of my um, huge pet peeves reading a bunch of YA stuff for chosen one narratives uh -huh. where like I'm going to use... Are you going to call use... somebody out? <laughs> Are you calling uh, out a comic, okay, Lisa? I, I was not going to call out a comic. Okay. I was going to uh, okay. uh, call out a novel series. Okay. But, like, there are so many of these series where it's just, like, you have your chosen one, and it is prophesied that they are going to be a success, and then we just watch them win and win and win. Right. And I think that that is a terrible example for young people. Yeah, garbage. Number three. <laughs> <laughs> Take time. Be kind. Don't rush sadness. According to Julia Samuel, author of Grief Works, 
quote, we don't allow time for grief in our society. We approve if the bereaved person is brave and just gets on with things and disapprove if they don't. But grieving takes longer than anyone wants or expects. We can't fight it and we can only find ways to support ourselves in it. When we block it, there are much higher rates of both physical and mental illness, end quote. Hmm. Okay, Julia Samuel, um, we've actually mentioned her before on this podcast, but she specializes in grief from the loss of a person. But I think that you can apply this to all of the little griefs in our life that, mm. that we like, we have a rejection or disappointment or we lose a friend and we go like, oh, I can't believe I'm still worrying about that thing. And we should just... Like And Julia Samuel goes like, well, it's going to take time. And yeah. trying to stuff it down is just going to um, make the pain more acute. It's mm. just going to let, linger yeah. longer. Yeah. When you are sad, your brain is going to ask you for time to ruminate, rest, escape. Be patient with yourself and give it time. Try to take time to give your emotion, quote, immersive attention, end quote, where you are just listening to that emotion. So, like, if you are, Brad, going into that rumination state, like, just let it happen. Like, if you're in the rumination state and you're going, like, I should not be feeling this. I'm disgusted with myself for feeling this. How can I stop feeling this? You're not going to resolve anything. And maybe you should communicate that with your partner, mm -hmm. you know, which is hard sometimes. When Brad goes into a brood state, I will now refer to it as a rumination state. <laughs> Lisa, I'm sorry. I'm in a rumination state. Just give me some space for a second. And I need to learn to respect that. Yeah, you I'm know. like, take me out. <laughs> Number four, avoid deprivation. Don't try to control your sadness by depriving it of what it's asking for. If your sadness is asking for a treat, you know, like uh, watch a movie, read a comic, have a cookie. Ice cream. Yeah, ice cream. I want ice cream. <laughs> Give it a treat. Um, it can be, oh, I included this in uh, the copy. It can be a food treat, comic book treat, movie treat, something delightful yeah. and harmless, yeah. and perhaps a brief distraction. I'm very good at that part. I've mastered that already. Okay, then let's go on to number five. Good. Avoid excess. Oh, no. <laughs> there must be balance in all things. You want to avoid numbing behaviors. <laughs> Ask yourself, am I taking a break from my emotions or oh, no. am I running from my mm. emotions? Has my behavior taken me to a destructive or at least not productive place? Mm. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I'll uh, underline this portion here. And then number six, get mad. This one may be a surprise and a challenge for Marco, who has been trying to curb his penchant for violence and is really afraid of yeah. being in a mad state. Unfortunately, many subgroups in our culture, here is everyone but white men, have been socialized <laughs> to not feel or express anger because it's not ladylike oh. or makes you appear overly threatening and exact retaliation. But according to psychologist Kimberly Wilson, author of How to Build a Healthy Brain, anger is a, quote, self-esteem emotion, end quote, and a reflection of your ability to value yourself. According to tier professor Ad Wengerhutz, women are actually more likely to express frustration, which is a sense of powerlessness where you're thinking, like, what else could I have done? Anger is an expression of I deserve better. 
And a study from Utrecht University showed that subjects who are primed to be angry actually strived harder for rewards versus unprimed subjects. Interesting. In other words, getting mad can get things done. The distinction of what is productive anger versus non-productive anger is made by philosophy professor Zach Cogley from Northern Michigan University, who refers to virtuous anger versus vicious anger. Virtuous anger pushes us to persuade others to make changes so that we are treated more fairly. And vicious anger pushes us to take out our angers on others through venting, which is getting someone else mad with no intention of actually making changes, and punishing, hurting someone for causing your emotion. Russell doesn't really go into what makes a person virtuously angry versus viciously angry other than choice and behavior. So maybe it's as simple as a redefinition of options, just taking the option of violence off of the table like Marco is doing. Like we're not entitled to physically hurt people, so we have to create a change in other ways. I'm just, I'm not sure. Interesting, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean you, you gotta do something. Like I like the idea of like, well, violence is not an option. Right, right, so like, so we shouldn't also be tamping down our anger but we have to have a plan for when the anger happens so that we go like, okay, if I'm feeling, if this situation makes me angry, my options are I should talk to this person or yeah. I should change my own behavior or whatever. So while we have Marco and Alana on the couch, sometimes I call her Alana and sometimes I call her Alana. No one's keeping track, Lisa. <laughs> it's a it's an, a word for my eye holes, not for your ear holes. Yeah. But while we have Marco and Alana on the couch this week, we should monitor their behavior for these more healthy options when dealing with their sadness and make note when they are choosing to fall back on more destructive behaviors. Okay. Well, while I get my notebook in order for that, Lisa, I think we need to do some words of affirmation. Oh wow, that was that was mighty powerful. Uh, so for first-time listeners, you should know that our words of affirmation are our way that we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these ourselves, and we're more than happy to pass them on to you. This week, we only have one new patron, and I would like to indulge in an entire poem. Oh. Is that okay? I love it. Let's do it. So this is The Guest House by Rumi. Take a deep breath. And this reading is dedicated to Mike Thompson. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness... Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Yeah, I really like that, Lisa. More poetry on comic book couples counseling. That that idea of going like, I'm a guest house for emotions, they're not staying for long, so just like make the most of them. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had this poem on my phone, like going like, how can I break this up into like multiple words of affirmation? Mm. But I think just... 
as a piece, like just having that like touchstone to go back to of like, okay, be at a guest house. Okay, yeah. be a guest house. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing it with us. And thank you, Mike Thompson, for being our new patron. And thank you to all our patrons. They help make this podcast possible. Of course, we don't expect all of you listening to join and support Comic Book Couples Counseling financially. But if you want to give back in just the smallest of ways, you can always leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help us reach more listeners, get into more of those ear holes that Lisa likes talking about. Mm -hmm. I love talking about holes. You love talking about holes. So there you are. We now need to get into session properly with Marco and Alana. Okie dokie, pokey loki. On to the main <laughs> event this week we're discussing saga issues 31 through 42 which were collected in trade paperbacks volume 6 and 7 they were written by brian k vaughn fully illustrated by fiona staples and lettered by phonographics the issues were originally published between november 2015 and january 2017 and here's the basic plot synopsis taken off the back of the books volume 6 after a dramatic time jump, Saga continues to evolve as Hazel begins the most exciting adventure of her life, kindergarten. Meanwhile, her star-crossed family learns hard lessons of their own. Volume 7. The War for Fang is an epic, self-contained Saga event. Finally reunited with her ever-expanding family, Hazel travels to a war-torn comet that Reef and Landfall have been battling over for ages. New friendships are forged, and others are lost forever in this action-packed volume about families, combat, and the refugee experience. The wild thing about reading these two particular trade paperbacks together... Look, I said the word particular. Ooh, look at you. But I, I still can't say the word particularly. Particularly. I still can't do it. Just say it the same, <laughs> but just say less syllables. I, uh, should we edit this? Not going um, The weird thing about reading these two volumes back to back is how they truly do operate like a roller coaster ride emotionally. The first volume is this kind of fun heist story. It's all about reunification. And then the second volume, The War for Fang, it, it, it takes everything that you were happy about at the end of volume six and smashes it. In both of these volumes, actually, Marco and Alana are getting along extremely well. It feels so good. In volume five, they're separated from Hazel and that's distressing. But they both really are united in their search. And every time they make progress, they get a little closer. Right, yeah. So it this feels is, wonderful. It feels wonderful. And it's um, an opportunity for them to kind of put some of those latent insecurities behind them. Yeah. And then in the war for Fang... They are still operating. I love to use the word operating. I don't know if you can tell. I They're still it. operating uh, in a high functioning fashion all the way up until the tragedy uh, of, you know, Fang's decimation and, of course, the loss of their baby. But even then, like Hazel as a narrator said, this was some of the best times we had together as a family. So yeah. I, I think that we're really getting um, a really special time in their life and a really beautiful family portrait. I just think if you were going to 
summarize what it's like to read Saga to somebody who's never read Saga and you really just wanted to throw them in the deep end without ever giving them the first few volumes, if you gave them volume six and seven, that kind of encapsulates the entire uh, tsunami of emotions that this book can be. That being said, well, Alana and Marco are in this really high, confident, uh, like very, they're, able to cling to their principles, place like uh, Prince Robot 4, emotionally spiraling. The Will is also emotionally spiraling. So there's always this kind of contrapuntal emotional landscape of all of the characters. Of course, we're going to be focusing on Marco and Alana. Yeah, Yeah, so if there are characters who are at a low in their narrative in Saga. There will be other characters who are at a high. And so the focus for us tends to be like, oh, Marco and Alana are at a high, everything is going gravy. But that is not the case for many, many, many other individuals. And, you know, this comic, as we saw at the end of the last volume, it starts with a time jump. You know, Hazel is much older than when we last saw her. What is it? It's Three years. Yeah, three years. And she is being educated in this detention center and her guardians are Clara, uh, her grandmother, and Lexus, the last member of the last revolution. And I love them as a duo. What an unexpected treat they are. Do you get the impression that they become an item? I like. I was wondering that as I was reading this volume. I don't know if I can necessarily say that's for certain. Definitely in my fantasy correct. they are. <laughs> yes, and, and mine as well. And, you know, when Clara stays behind, like I, I was not expecting that and I love that. Although I do feel also a little bit robbed of the relationship of the grandmother being with Hazel and Marco and Alana and where the story goes from here. Like I, I, I miss Clara's presence, but I do like this idea where she's like, no, I have now formed a new life here in this detention center. Something I'm doing something that's meaningful. These people need me. And yeah, I think that's really beautiful. But I think in a way, like Clara will always be with this family. And I don't mean in like a spiritual, like, and when they pass away, she'll look down. Like, I mean, like in a literal, like she raised Hazel at such a critical time in her um, development. I mean, effectively, she's the parent over these three years. And um, it's the guardian who teaches children a child how to emotionally regulate and we see in this opening scene of hazel in the classroom that she has grown accustomed to kind of stuffing down and playing Mm. off her sadness it starts with the the classroom teacher noreen you can tell like this is a really hip preschool if you get to call the teacher the first name Um, But Noreen is trying to do this exercise about, like, draw and share a picture of something that makes you sad. And all of the children are like, this is a picture of the arm I lost in the war. And this is a picture of my dead brother. And Hazel's like, this is a picture of Tootie Stinkfoot. (laughs) And when he toots, it smells so bad. And it it makes me, like, really, really sad. And when the teacher Noreen confronts her, like, it's supposed to be something that makes you sad. His farts are so smelly, (laughs) they do make me sad. And the whole classroom, like, cracks up. But then the teacher takes Hazel aside 
and says, like, you know, I have this book. Like, it belonged to my kids. They don't really use it anymore. I want to pass this book on to you. And the book is called Let Me Be, which was a book that Alana gave to Hazel. And she and, and Hazel admits that she still has vague memories of her parents. And she begins crying. And the narration, Hazel narrator, says, like, that had been the first time I cried since I was separated from my parents. Right. And she actually later says, like, Tootie Stinkfoot is kind of her memory of her dad because she remembered her dad had super smelly feet and her mom was a terrible singer. And, um, but like her not being able to cry, I think is in part due to the trauma that she has been through Mm -hmm. and, and part of her survival Mm -hmm. to look like she's strong and doing fine. But I also think that, Marco also has issues with emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. And now um, Hazel is being raised by that same guardian. Yeah. So we yeah. might be having some of those same issues we see in Marco start manifesting themselves in Hazel. And as Hazel ages, we will see so much of her parents in her as like an autonomous being now. Like before this point, Hazel was really just an object, Mm -hmm. right? Like any baby or toddler. They're not a person yet. And now Hazel is a person. She's walking around and she's creating ideas and she's keeping secrets. Yeah, and causing chaos. Marco and Alana don't even enter the story until chapter 32, which opens with Marco's hands around Alana's throat and they are doing this little improv sketch so that they can uh, break into the variegate. And so Alana is his captive and he's like, let me in to the security guy. And it's clear that they are rubbing off on each other. Like he used to be so suspicious of her like acting skills, but now like he's really doubled down on the nonviolence and he goes like, hey, a little trickery is not a bad thing. As a reader, I don't feel robbed of our time with Hazel over the course of those three years. I do feel a little robbed of our time with Marco and Alana because I feel like there's an entire series that could be in this particular time period that we don't actually get to see. It's so much fun. It does feel like a crime caper comic, uh, something that Guy Ritchie would direct, right? And Fiona Staples' acting in this issue is some of the best that she has ever done in this series. Alana's facial expressions in this issue Everything is right there. Hand Fiona Staples an Oscar. The performances are are as good as, actually better than the performances that Alana and Marco are attempting in this robbery. They just look like they're having the friggin' best time. And even uh, Hazel and the narration say that in some ways, her parents were never closer than the years after mom lost me and reconnected with dad. And it's clear, it's clear. And you know, you're jealous of the time, the, the, the stories you didn't get. You see them really trusting each other and admiring each other and deferring to each other's expertise. 
that being said, they have not connected physically right. yeah. uh, since they lost Hazel. And Hazel narrating refers to it as like an unspoken vow, that they have this unspoken vow to not have sex until Hazel is returned to the family. And if they're truly looking after themselves in their sadness being separated from Hazel, they should be avoiding deprivation. So if they feel like they're, it's like one thing if they're just like, I'm too sad to be horny right now. But if they really are like having this kind of moment of abstinence because they are sad and they like, if, if the temptation is there, if the lust is there, they should be serving that need, which they do very soon after this, so. The way I interpret that vow is, yes, absolutely part of that avoidance situation. Like they are creating a wall around what is actually their ultimate fear because we learn later through Hazel's narration and how Hazel has access to this knowledge. I'm not 100% sure, but she says that both of her parents at this moment in time actually believed that Hazel was dead. And I feel like that vow is part of them barricading themselves from their ultimate dread. Yeah, like they like they're afraid if they get over emotional and let themselves go in that way, then they're going to let themselves go in other ways and have to have that conversation. Yeah, but like like if they tr- if they fully connect again, if they become a true partnership, which includes physical intimacy, then they have to share this secret knowledge, which they are probably thinking that the other person isn't thinking this, but they are both thinking that Hazel is dead. And how awful it would be to go, Marco... I th- I think we're doing this and it's fruitless and I'm afraid that Hazel's dead and then that would be like a betray a betrayal to your mm-hmm. partner and it would plummet them maybe both into a despair that's the worry but to your point like if you are not sharing your ultimate dreads with your partner you're just prolonging uh, the 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 sadness the pain that is with the sadness. For me, this uh, they're both continuing to strive to reunite the family and have Hazel. To me, this follow falls under the umbrella of like perhaps they have to lower their expectations oh, because Sarah. this war is huge and it's spread over several planets and it's it's eating people up it's a meat grinder so like yes in this case it does work out they do reunite with hazel but if they never real reunited with hazel what then yeah. like if their only measure of success is it's all three of us or failure yeah, I was thinking about, I, you know, Lisa and I have been uh, downloading. We've just been consuming true crime podcasts, and longtime listeners know about our uncomfortable obsession with true crime stories. But I've been listening to a particular one that involves uh, a missing woman, a daughter, a missing daughter, a missing wife. And, you know, it's now been decades for this family of not knowing where their uh, loved one is, but they have to continue going. And so how do you live with Hazel never being there and maybe never, ever coming back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like 
to me, I go like, maybe I would want to talk to them about like, okay, maybe like, maybe not failing is continuing to look for Hazel. Yeah. Until you know one way or another. Yeah. Or yeah. Maybe, maybe success can be like, at some point, we are going to have to stop looking. Or, you know, but I, what happens for Marco and Alana in this issue is that they do discover that Hazel is alive and detained, and they now have a location. And when that happiness comes back into them, they can then give themselves to each other. And so, like, I struggle with, like, well, that is a satisfying conclusion to this issue. Uh, it's also a little bit of a cheap like resolution to their emotional crisis. Well, I think that this issue is going to come up again. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. if their um, definition of success is three these three people on Together. the same plane yeah. of existence, yeah. they're going to have to redefine success. Right to create happiness, to ensure happiness in the future. To, they're, they're, yeah, to, to assure life in the future, continuation. So their high expectations work out this time, but I'm pretty sure they're not going to work out every single time. No spoilers, Lisa. Although, like, even spoilers for the next volume, you're right. Like, they have a familial loss next volume. They have a familial surprise at the end of this volume, and then they lose that. Maybe I'll drop this in here. I wasn't I wasn't uh, sure where to put this particular tidbit in my notes, but there is a common belief that parents who lose a child are less likely to stay together. Yeah, that that is a trope that you see in film all the time. And and I think people do believe it to be true. Like, you know, like you see your spouse, your spouse reminds you of the child you lost and, and, and that is sad. And there are certainly cases where that is true in life. You know? Right, right. And, and that was true for Helen Russell's parents. After her sister died, her, her family quickly split up. But statistically... According to the Institute of Medicine, 72% of couples who lose a child stay married. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my family, we have two incidences of that, and the, the families both remain together. And I think that it might be because the, pers the other person in that couple understands the sadness of losing a child. Yeah, no one qu can quite understand it other than the other person. And yeah. that sadness we think is that that we think is destructive mm. is actually a source of strength. Yeah, unifying. And um and so you compare the 72% um of couples staying together to the American Psychological Association statistic of like 40 to 50% of marriages split up. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And then you compare it to the Hollywood statistics. <laughs> yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, you know, I don't know if those statistics are, are really all that comparable, considering, <laughs> like, a lot of couples get divorced before they have kids. Right. Right, so uh, I'd be interested to see the statistics of, uh, like, couples that have kids staying together versus couples who have kids and one of them dies. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You have to get on the, those statistics, Lisa. No, no. This is about as deep as I go. I just checked to see if there's a citation, and yep, there is. Got to be true. But at the <laughs> end of this issue, Marco and Alana are hopeful. They know where they're going. They have boned. They look like they are in a pure bliss state. Uh, they have probably created life in this action here. Uh, All things look awesome, unless you are the Will or (laughs) Goose Squire or Prince Robot, because so much other stuff is going on in this volume that is not working out that will eventually drive more problems toward Marco and Alana. But again, we're not focusing on that right now. For Marco and Alana, everything's coming up, Millhouse. Oh, no, that won't last for long because they got to go find Prince Robot because they need him. His help to get through the Landfallian security measures and his royal connections or his royal schematics. Just the shape of his head, yeah. really, because they invited <laughs> him along to uh, to uh, impersonate some duke or something. Right, right, right. And then, of course, the Landfallian guards just like, well, they all look alike. These <laughs> people from the robot kingdom and Prince Robot is deeply offended as he should be. Uh, so, you know, Goose convinces Prince Robot to go with them to help free Hazel and Robot reluctantly leaves Squire behind and he's only going to become more and more reluctantly uh, involved in any action with Marco and Lana but for now they're together and they do get through those security measures they do break into the detention center just in time really because teacher Noreen who now knows about Hazel's uh, tricky origin is trying to in her very like helpful, helpful, helpful way. But the whole time, Lisa, I was like, this is going to go horribly wrong. Like when Noreen came around to Hazel, like when Hazel showed Noreen her wings, what what did you think was going to happen? I didn't trust Noreen. Yeah. I was like, Noreen is going to rat her out in a second. Yeah, yeah. Which may still have been the direction it was going. Uh, she went so far as to have... Hazel in a box. I like to, and she was trying to get out no, of the No, I think center. she was trying to help in her way, but she is one of those helpers where she's more trouble than she's worth the entire time. Like, I'm just so anxious every time she's on the page. And I was extremely relieved when Marco showed up when he did. But forever, Noreen remains this kind of symbol of Hazel's autonomy. Mm. She is making her own calls. Hazel never feels guilty or ashamed that she showed her wings to someone. She said like, hey, I've hung with this big yellow mantis chick. She (laughs) seems cool to me. And... I needed to. I needed someone. Well, I needed to cry. I needed to un- unload. Hazel witnessing Noreen's empathy is proof that not everyone in the universe is an outright monster. Yeah, but but Hazel now trusts her instincts. She has the instincts of a five year old. Sure, sure, sure. But Marco does arrive, and he's holding Ponkonk, oh, her little doll, and he's really concerned that Hazel is not going to recognize him because she was a toddler. She was like barely a toddler the last time Hazel saw him. But of course, she recognized him immediately. Daddy, 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 and daddy, oh my, daddy. Even you just saying that gives me like a little choked <laughs> it's, up. I mean, it's the most emotional moment of this particular volume. Man, am I saying the word particular a lot. 
It's only because you're self-conscious about it. I am super self-conscious about it now. But during this scene of reunion, Hazel, like in my notes, I call her Hazel narrator. Mm-hmm. When is, can I just call her ha- yeah. Hazel narrator? Yeah. So during the scene, Hazel narrator is recounting a story that Marco told to her about yeah. getting dropped off at school. Like when he had to start going to school, he would cry every day in devastation over being separated from his parents. And even once the crying stopped, he still had that yearning to be home. And school was what taught him to love being home. Yeah, so good, so well-written. And I think it's so important to keep in mind, like all of these small griefs are preparing us for the big grief. Yeah, I like that idea that you were just talking about where sorrow shared can be a bonding experience. And you certainly see that throughout Saga. I also think that we see in Saga, in times of great strife and turmoil, they still have moments of profound happiness. Sure. And I think... Um, A lot of times we go like, I don't know if I could handle being separated from Brad or I I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle losing my parents. Right. And the truth is that um, we can handle pretty much anything. And like just like um, we we think, oh, if I change this thing about my life. I'm then going to be happy. Just like that isn't really necessarily true. Like if something happens to you, Brad, that doesn't mean I'll never be happy again. We make happiness in the worst environments. I think a lot about my grandfather growing up in the depression and he would always tell us he was never happier than when he was 10 years old. uh, And at the most poor his family has ever been and would ever be. Uh, and, And so like, you know, in the worst moments, there is light. You have to be your own light. Uh, I was just reading uh, House Cat Trouble, the uh-huh. new comic book. You should all be reading House Cat Trouble. But that is one of the things that one of the, the house cats or one of the street cats tells Buster, the house cat, you have to be your own light in the darkness. Mm. And uh, I'm folding that into my personal philosophy. I think that we should save that one for words of affirmation. I yeah. think that it there that is, is There great. are so many words of affirmation in House Cat Trouble, Lisa. I am so excited. You're going to love it. But I think like... With the looking after ourselves when we're sad, like lowering expectations, like, because <laughs> we feel like we are lowering expectations by saying like, well, as long as I'm with Brad, mm-hmm. then <laughs> things yeah. are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But even our lowest expectation is not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And so maybe like, uh, you know, we should make goals but maybe the best thing is to not have any expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to seek things. You got to be like hopeful and adventurous in your planning and for your future. But uh, if everything doesn't fall according to that plan, don't let it uh, destroy you. Uh, easier said than done. Um, in uh, How to Be Sad, uh, I took this out of my notes as well, but I make up for it by saying everything I edited out from my notes to make them too long. Um, <laughs> was It's called like, Adaptive optimalism. Mm. And um, optimalism is this like thing that I don't agree with, where it's like <laughs> um, optimalism is the belief that we live 
in the best possible universe because this is the universe that exists. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like this has to be the best situation because this is the situation that I'm in. Lisa and Brad, we believe in the multiverse. We don't believe in that. So <laughs> I, in my head, I read, I uh, like, um, I like rewrote it, and instead of saying adaptive optimalism, I I like to think of it as adaptive optimism. Like from whatever point that you're in. There is something that you can do to make the situation better. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you just totally. have to always restart and rebuild from the existing present. Yeah, every second is a chance to turn left or right. Mm-hmm. And speaking left or right, you know, this issue ends, the final issue, the final page of this volume is Marco and Alana realizing, thanks to Petrichor's really great sense of smell, <laughs> that Alana is indeed pregnant. And the final page of this volume, before the to be continued, is Alana making the happiest face <laughs> and Marco looked looking like shocked. Yeah, I can't decide what panel is going to be the main panel for this episode that's going to be our show page. I have a feeling I'm going to pick this one. Listeners already know which one I did. But right <laughs> now this is this is running point for what our show page uh, image will be. I love this moment, again, it's just so damn sad given where it goes from here. Uh, so we lose Clara from the team for a while, but we gain Petricor. Whom I love. And Prince Robot is with them, and Hazel's back with He's the Sir family. He's Sir Robot now. So yeah, Sir Robot. Sir Robot's with them now. So we've got an interesting unit. Uh, Goose is not with them. Squire's not with them. All right, it's time to get into the War of Fang and see how this all works out for everybody. Ugh, not well, Lisa, not well at all. And, you know, what we learn immediately is that the rocket tree ship is, it, it needs fuel. It's running out of fuel and they need to touch down somewhere. And the suggestion is made that they go to Fang. And the problem with Fang is it's this... It's a comet that is a tremendous source of fuel for both Landfall and Reef, and these two factions have been fighting on it for generations, and Marco has been on uh, uh, Fang before, and he's killed people on Fang. He has terrible memories associated with the many battles he experienced on Fang, and he does not want to go back. But as Petricor points out, they don't really have any other options and they'll only be there for like 30 minutes or so. <laughs> Six months later. And they've in, they've adopted this entire like religious meerkat family into the treehouse. These refugees who have to be, you know, next to Goose, uh, the second most adorable creatures in Saga. We always talk about Marco being the idealist and the upholder with his nonviolent shtick. But Alana is totally radical in her acceptance mm. of others. She's just gone like, you know what? If we have resources, we'll share them with whomever. Yeah. I think she, she might be slightly biased because how cute they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, she's definitely one of those who goes like, well, I'd rather die of trusting too much than living this distrustful life like Petrichor is living. And uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples are really going to test that. <laughs> and Marco really does 
prescribe to Alana's beliefs of radical acceptance. And he he even mentions it to Petrichor, like, if I if my wife taught me anything, there is no such thing as us or them. And as parents, they're passing this on to Hazel as well. And I think this will serve her well in her life of bouncing from place to place. What's sort of curiously complicated about this is how Alana does go into this kind of like mom mode. You know, she does feel like she is in her element with this growing family that they have created. But Marco, back on Fang, he's sort of suffering quietly alone uh, with being in, in this place of total violence that he used to partake in. And now he is sneaking off away from the ship to monitor the front lines. And it's kind of, you know, picking at him. You know, it is that scab that he wants, he wants to heal, but being here, he cannot heal. He is sticking to the nonviolence thing to a kind of aggre- aggressive degree, like to the point of irrationality. Like he's not even taking the sword along as a precaution just in case someone attacks. And at one point, Jabara goes like, what's going on? You need to be able to protect your family. And he mentions to her, like, it's hard. It's hard for me to be here because the last time I was here, I killed somebody. Yeah, and she's like, what do you mean it's hard to be here? I live here. <laughs> but, but she goes like, oh, well, the, then I understand why it might make you sad or it might, like, bring back, like, unhappy memories and he's like no I loved it I loved killing people and I am so afraid of that part of me coming back and ruining my family Marco is filled with shame for how he took pleasure in the skill of killing Mm -hmm. and also I think that he is tamping down some of his concerns about having a second child. Sure. Like Alana is has never been happier. She is, you know, Jabara is giving her a little birthing bracelet and she's calling a big crowd to dinner and she just seems so excited and happy. And every time the baby has come up, Marco has looked concerned. Uh, Right, yeah, yeah. He does not have uh, a smile. Or if he does have a smile, it's not a joyous one. So, so like, I think that um, he, like, it's, it's like the sex thing. Like, if I allow my emotions to get too big, then everything's going to have to come out. And I don't know if I have the time to take to deal with this sadness. Yeah. Like he's afraid of looking after himself in that way. Well, I mean, he doesn't have the time because Fang is on a collision course with a time suck, which is like this crazy cosmic baby. I love the idea of a time suck being a baby. You know, Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples both have children. They are tremendous time sucks (laughs) on their creative life, their careers. And so Fang is on a collision course and, you know, the family, Marco's clan, knows that this time suck is coming and they got to get off the comet. Unfortunately, the Meerkat family, Jabara's people, 
they are a very faithful people and they've come close to hitting time sucks in the past and they believe that their Lord will spare them this time. And so they elect to stay on Fang while Marco and Alana's people get out of Dodge. Alana does everything short of shooting them in the face to get them <laughs> onto the ship. And I think this is going to be particularly hard for Hazel because she and Curdy have become incredibly close, like kissing on the mouths close. Yeah. And I think that is going to be something hard to explain to her because Hazel wasn't raised with a faith. And um, we know from a private conversation that Curdy and Hazel had, she doesn't believe in any kind of God or whatever or feather fairy for that matter. So I, I think that um, Alana is not going to be able to rationalize the choice that Jabara and her family made. Well, you'll have to wait till next volume, Lisa, to answer that, because this one just ends in the most bleakest way possible. We do learn behind the scenes that Landfall and Wreath are collaborating to destroy uh, Fang and through Gwendolyn and Sophie's actions. They give uh, Landfall this device that I don't know. Like it's like a Hellblazer box. I, it's, yeah, I mean a Hellraiser box. Oh, excuse Lisa. me. I sometimes get those confused. It's a very <laughs> honest thing to do. Listen to our Sandman Patreon episodes. Uh, out of this box comes this like electric cosmic woojity woo, and it goes into the time suck, and the time suck baby starts spewing black goo everywhere, and that black goo drowns Curdy and his family, and those are the last pages. Poor Curdy just gasping for air and going down, down Those are down. the very last pages. But before those pages, in trying to get um, oh, the yeah. treehouse off the planet. And battle another uh, uh, bounty hunter, the branch. No, the march. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they get stuck in the goo, and it takes a little jostling to get them loose. And that jostling throws Alana against a wall and then she falls into like the sunken living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And before that though, Lisa, Marco kills the march. Marco like obliterates the march, just shoots him up like like Dillinger. Yeah, yeah. Well, cause that he had used that rifle thing and it kind of throws like buckshot kind of thing. (laughs) <laughs> it's their Tommy gun. So he's broken his vow. vow. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then uh, Alana is thrown against the wall, and she realizes that the baby is no longer kicking, and Marco listens for a heartbeat. There's no heartbeat. And Yeah. yeah. And, and they both begin crying. It's the worst kind of ending. Yeah. And then and then everybody's covered in goo, blackness, 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 like to the, be continued. The last batch of pages is just black goo pages, just total blackness. And as you flip those last few pages, especially on a reread, just structurally, that is so effective for sinking your mood. And like we said at the beginning of this episode, it was really hard not to go to the next volume in a in a way to shake off this dread-filled emotion that you're left with. Hazel narrator Ugh. on those last couple of pages as we watch Curdy drown is talking about like sometimes 
the uh, relationships that cause her the most heartache is the relationships that never really came to fruition. Yeah. Like she met someone, had this great time together. Chemistry with Curdy, kisses with Curdy. But then you never see that person again. And I think that relates back to like the idea of expectation mm. that that you meet someone and you think how beautiful your relationship is going to be. And then there is the heartache of never reconnecting. And I think that's just a reminder that, you know, we really have to cherish the people that we are with while we are with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Live every day, as they say. Um, live every day to the fullest, I think, is the actual <laughs> Live phrase, <right>? every day <laughs> until eventually you stop. You stop living. <laughs> Welcome to Saga. Uh, Lisa, as a first-time reader of these comic books, how do you feel after completing volumes six and seven? Like, what's your feeling uh, in relation, like, wh what is your relationship now with Saga and how has it now changed because of these two particular volumes? I think just like any couple that we talk about on the podcast, like my appreciation for them just deepens. Mm -hmm. But with Saga, I feel this tremendous momentum at the end of each volume where I just want to move on to the next emotion. I want to uh -huh. see where this story is going. And because the uh, main tragedy, which we're not going to actually mention other than like dance around it, that because you know the basics of the main tragedy, like that hangs over your first time reading experience in a way that it did not for other people who were unaware. I of that. wish I wasn't aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of um, how this was going to go. You say and that like it's my fault. I it is your was fault. It my fault. You told was it, me. Was it the internet? The internet no, didn't tell you. It was one hundred percent Brad Gullickson, and I understand why you did it. It was because you were sad. Yeah, I got and you wanted my pain. to unburden yourself. Yeah, and I want to gain unification through the sorrow, Lisa. Yeah, I know. But it really has tainted my experience. Sorry. Um, but it does remind me to cherish the time that I have with all of these characters because it is brief and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully not with Goose. Goose is forever. <laughs> we can hope so. So, Brad, I think that we're ready to discuss some of our takeaways from these two volumes of Saga and also our ongoing discussion with Helen Russell about how to be sad. Well, I think like the, the what I connect to most, you know, uh, as this conversation progressed, this idea of sharing sadness and needing to share sadness and speak sadness to another when you are feeling it, that's going to be my big takeaway. Uh, I, I think it is something that Marco and Alana will continue to struggle with uh, the way that we all continue to struggle with it. But you know, I would hope, and I, th I think me and you, Brad and Lisa, are pretty good at this. You're certainly good at this. I like, can't, like, if I feel even the slightest bit of feeling, I'm announcing it. Right. You, you, you will absolutely come to me with your sadness. And the, the trick for me is to absorb the sadness and resist the urge of correcting the sadness or fixing the problem. And really just about, like, you know, okay, first let's figure out, let, let me just enjoy the sadness with you. That's, that's a, that's a challenge for me. Now it is more difficult for me to share sadness with you because I do go into that brood state 
And I think this conversation hopefully has helped me realize that there is a a deepening of a relationship that occurs when you do fully give your sadness to another person. But I do think that I need to um, respect your need to ruminate that, yes, ruminate. Like, That's another good word. That's another good takeaway. Like, um, e- just the other day, you were having a moment of rumination, <laughs> and I was like, sounds, well... It definitely sounds better. <laughs> I, and I was like, well, you know, your rumination, like... It, it's uh, harsh in my mellow. <laughs> uh, not that it was harshing my mellow. I think it was about recording the podcast. Was, yes. <laughs> and um I put you, I my through my bad behavior, I put you into a bit of a sad, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we were like, okay, well, we can't record now because I'm you're a having sad. a sad. So I was like, well, um, if we've decided we're not going to record the podcast, stop being sad so we can go <laughs> and enjoy the rest of our day. <laughs> I was like, I was like, uh, let's get busy. Yeah. That was my, I, was, I fell back onto oh, what I learned last and, week. And, I, but, but like in sharing that experience, we di- it did speed us along to get me out of my rumination state. And we did end up having a lot of fun that day. So, But I think also like we want to remind ourselves like when we are in a ru- rumination state, we are looking to for resolution. Mm-hmm. Like y- you should always be yeah. striving to resolve whatever processing. the issue is. Yeah, processing, processing. Is, is, is part um, of the process. Like, I think that even with Marco kind of holding back some of his emotions, I think that as a couple, there are they are very highly functioning in stressful circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think that um, as much as we would love to just be like this open channel of emotions, like there are things that sometimes are urgent that need to be taken care of. And there are circumstances where you go like, I'm going to allow my partner to be happy while she can, and I'll do what I can on my own. I'll talk to Petricor, I'll talk to Jabara, I will use other resources mm. other than like my number one to process some of this. Yeah. Um, I think also from Helen Russell, and I, I'm really taking away the idea of looking after yourself when you're feeling sad and, and and like to almost get outside of yourself and go like, hey, baby, hey, sweetheart, what do you need right now? I see that you're sad. How can I, how can this be helped? Yeah, I would also add the thing that I'm taking away from the Helen Russell side is this idea of keeping your expectations in check. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the metaphor of shooting for the moon and landing in the stars and, hey, the stars are pretty darn good. That's, I'm keeping that for sure. Yeah, the, the idea of broadening your definition of success. Yeah. Um, I think is really, really important. I've... Really enjoyed this conversation, Lisa. Me too. Uh, you know, I, I say this every saga episode, but I am like madly, deeply in love with this comic book. The more I read it, the more it reaches the heights of my very favorite comic books. I do think it is a masterpiece, and I'm very excited to get into the next episode. Me too. I, like, 
I have missed Marco and Alana in these two issues. I love the other characters so very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have been, well, especially in the first volume, they were barely in the first volume. And frankly, in these two volumes, they've been very busy. Yes. You know, and um, so they haven't had, a, we haven't had a lot of well, couple time. Uh, Lisa, they're going to continue to be pretty darn busy <laughs> for the next two volumes. Uh, so yes, next week, our next episode is going to be on Saga Trade Paperback Volume 8, a very good trade paperback, and building into the week after that, we will do Saga Volume 9. So only two more volumes to go. And then however many issues are out now. Yeah, in our Saga Volume 9 episode, we will probably include the three issues after that. So the three issues that Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples have returned to post volume nine. So um, what's the plan for when Saga is like over, over? We'll, we'll have to come back and- Yeah, I was thinking about that too, right? So like when we did Sex Criminals, we did the first five volumes in the course of four episodes. And then when that series finally concluded with one more volume, we did a one pod stand episode to wrap it up. I'm wondering if we should do one pod stand episodes after every arc is concluded. Okay. But listeners, if you have thoughts on that, would you rather wait for us until Saga is completely done in 108 issues? Or should we, once every arc is completed, return for an episode? Uh, I'm leaning towards that because I, I just How think- can we not talk about it? Exactly. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of sadness to process with y'all. Yeah, and I think we're also going to start doing written reviews of saga issues Ooh. on the Comic Book Couples Counseling website, so be on the lookout for that as well. And on the Patreon feed this week, we have a conversation with writer-artist Nick Dragada and his co-writer Caleb Golner about their new image comic series, Ghost Cage. Nick Dragada, one of our all-time favorite artists, the artist behind East of West. Mm-hmm. That was so exciting to talk to them both about Ghost Cage. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber, you can also check out several other conversations that we have unlocked for you. We talked to Cherish Chen about Radiant Red and Jarrett Krasoska about Lunch Lady. And uh, yeah, so like browse around, take a look, see if you like it or not. Of course, if you are a Patreon subscriber, there are some sweet, sweet nothings that we whisper only into your ears. That's right. We're doing our Sandman issue by issue series. We've covered Sandman's first 25 issues, 25 episodes. And we are doing a Batman spoiler filled review cast that is still happening, Lisa. It's in the future. It's in the future. Very excited to put that conversation on the mic. Uh, so there you have it. Um, how else do we, where do, where do we go from here, Lisa, now that we've done all our plugs? I don't know where you're going next, Brad, but I'm going into that shower because <laughs> I am a dirty, dirty so girl. Dirty. Brad. <laughs> Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Oh, please send all your bubblicious words of affirmation to this squeaky clean guy at MouthDork on all social media. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I actually have already showered. Oh, Will what? you be able to tell 
audibly when that was. Oh, there was an edit. <laughs> um, but I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. My mouth is so spitty. <laughs> oh.